So what's the best psychedelic or drug for the brain in, in your expert opinion? I mean, it's hard to say, right? They're all quite, quite, they seem to be quite beneficial for the brain. I'm actually really excited about 5-MeO-DMT and also just normal NN, quote unquote, normal NN-DMT because they're very, very potent, but like short lasting. But despite the fact that they're short lasting, for example, with 5-MeO-DMT, they find that it boosts neuroplasticity on a similar order to psilocybin LSD. And it might actually last as long too, because there, there was one study that, found that uh, the neuroplastic changes induced by 5-MeO, which is like a 15-minute experience, were lasted at 30 days later. And so to have such a potent, rapid experience with long-lasting benefits that's potently anti-inflammatory and pro-neuroplasticity, that's kind of wild. And I think, you know, we need more attention on 5-MeO as well, for sure. Yeah, I guess even though it's shorter, it's also way more intense, right? And there's been some controversy because folks have just been doing it in rivers and stupid locations and it's, oh, yeah. it's led to complications, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think with 5-MeO, despite it being short, proper prep and integration is still essential. Prep may even be more important than with psilocybin because it is an intense experience, right? For those who don't know, you, you smoke a, a decent amount of 5-MeO and you just go straight into an intense ego dissolution experience where you're... <laughs> You know, you're flooded um, and overwhelmed with just the onset of the effects. I know from my personal experience, it's uh, it's I feel like I get to get a download of cosmic energy or just light um, saturating my entire experience such that there's no space for anything else. There's no space for identity, time, space, uh, anything. And you're just completely overwhelmed. And in that state. Um, your body might be shaking, it might be having spontaneous movements, you might be yelling, you know, people often maybe start, you start crying and doing all sorts of things, and just to low, totally lose control. And as you can imagine, that's, that's intense to completely lose control of your body and your mind, uh, and what's going on, and you have to be held in the right kind of way and feel safe and all the things. Yeah, super essential. Where did you um, smoke 5-MeO? And, and did you have a moment at the beginning where it was like your ego was trying to like fight back and there was like 15, 20 seconds of fear and weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. So like I have, you know, I've done my share of high dose mushrooms experiences and, and LSD and ayahuasca ceremonies and um, 5-MeO definitely is a different experience. So I, I, the most recent place where I did it was at my good friends, uh, Joel and Victoria's retreat center called Tendava Retreats in Tepatzlan in Mexico beautiful retreat center uh, and they're amazing at what they do. And they actually have training programs for 5-MeO practitioners, which are totally uh, world-class. Um, but I should say conflict, I'm on their advisory board, I suppose, uh, but I don't receive any monetary things from them. I just think they're amazing. And I remember- They just um, get you in to like inspect their brain every so often or what? Right, well, it's for their education programs. And also they're doing a study in collaboration with University College London, looking at the brain correlates using EEG. And I've been consulting on that too, uh, on some of the study design factors and et cetera. But, um, but yeah, what like doing 5-MeO, it has such a rapid onset. So it's like, it's going to trigger a fear response. You're like, wait, my entire reality is trying to go away from yeah, me. Yeah, why did I do this? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Yeah, oh, I'm gone. I shouldn't have done this. Like, this is it. I've done it, you know? <laughs> And like, it teaches you the real meaning of surrender. That's what I discovered is like, it teaches you what it truly means to just 
completely let go of your entire reality and surrender. Just, <laughs> it's just intense for sure. And all like the the joints in my body just relax. I mean, the whole body. It's like a kind of cosmic orgasm. But it's really yeah. important, you know, to be to do with the right people because, yeah, I I you know did it with a guy in London, and then I also actually sat with with Joe and Victoria. I don't know if we've discussed it before, but yeah. Not not to blow their trumpet too much. I mean, I've only got like one reference point and it was fine as well with the other guy. But yeah, it just wasn't that space to totally surrender, which is actually where the real, real, yeah, juiciness of this medicine lies in just being able to totally, totally let go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But not many psychedelic scientists are so, um, you know, I didn't, even ask, I didn't even ask you, you know, about, your experiences with psychedelic drugs you you offered that for free some other psychedelic scientists including your new boss robin i understand because he mm-hmm. he was very i asked him the same question i mean this was three years ago but i know mm-hmm. others like you know david nutt maybe they have kind of in smaller settings um you know spoke about their experiences but on the whole that they prefer to let the data do the talking right yeah definitely i mean it's an interesting question on to what extent uh, you know, researchers should admit or, you know, ever share that their own experiences. And there's reasons on both sides, but my psychedelics cats out of the bag. I used to avoid the question and ask people not to ask me it publicly. And I used to not be open about it. But I think, you know, I'm of the opinion that to really understand these drugs and their effects and to understand what's behind the abstractions that we're using, we need to have first person experience because the experience is so profound and, and radically different than our usual everyday experience. Actually trying the substances yourself can be great grounds for new hypotheses and understanding frameworks and getting into the depths of the nuance behind the abstractions and generalizations we use scientifically. And um, also I mean, my experiences have been a huge impetus for me to be curious and understand it, uh, understand them more. The often um, criticism is that, oh, you tried a psychedelic. Now you're just trying to confirm your own beliefs around how amazing it is and et cetera, Um, which I have two main answers to that. One is that if you're someone who's approaching science with the intention just to confirm your beliefs um, based on your experience, you probably had that predisposition already. Like psychedelics has enhanced your own predisposition not to be a reliable, objective um, person. Um, and it has brought out the fact that you, you already have a predisposed tendency to try to confirm your own beliefs and rather than being hyper-skeptical and trying to evaluate them, which is more of a scientific attitude. And then the second thing is I'm not a clinical researcher. I'm a mechanistic researcher. It's not like I'm doing clinical studies where I'm trying to find out if psychedelics work and then that's maybe, you know, if I truly believed that they're the cure to all things, which I don't believe, um, then maybe that would influence that kind of study. But I'm looking at how they affect the brain and looking at mechanisms and how different brain networks and regions interact in these complex ways. How does my experience of psychedelics bias me towards a particular framework or not? That doesn't make any sense to me. That's all to say, like, I, I'm completely uh, indifferent to that whole thing. And I, I share openly at this point. Well, congratulations coming out of the closet throughout science as well. Like, and just like the argument goes that, oh, if you've, if you've consumed something or if you've had this shot or you, you take this medicine or you've eaten this food, then what you can never speak objectively 
about it, it seems it seems a little bit far fetched. Yeah, it's like I drink alcohol. I can't be an alcohol researcher now, or I take Tylenol for my headaches. I can't research it because it makes my headaches better. It's kind of like that, you know. <laughs> but then, but then, yeah, obviously, if if you're on like ten boards and you're getting remuneration for many of them then yeah maybe there are questions to answer if if you're being rolled out as as the expert on yeah potentially debatable sort of studies or topics right then then maybe you know you there is some potential bias that people could scrutinize yeah no that's totally fair and you know my response to that is like I'd rather be authentic and truthful about my own self rather than pretending I don't try these substances uh, when I really do, which is basically every researcher, you know, and, you know, so <laughs> I'd rather be honest and authentic and take what comes. Does that ever freak out your um, potential love partners? The fact that you're a brain imaging expert. Uh, interesting. <laughs> They love it. I mean, they enjoy it. I think in general, um, they find it quite interesting. And I try to like share it in, in whatever ways I can. And most of my, you know, quote unquote, love partners uh, who I'm close with are a bit nerdy like me too. So they get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, funnily enough, we actually met in a men's circle, which is a yeah. kind of for the uninitiated is like a yeah, male only space where brothers connect over shared issues and can check in with the group and we do this like one exercise at the beginning right to get rid of the charges that like everyone does eye gazing for like 30 seconds and with each person and then if you've got like a charge or a trigger you confess it to the group and yeah sometimes guys like have got an issue over the same girl or they don't like yeah. something the person did like the week before or there's just he reminds you of someone how was how was your experience in in Mazunte at the men's circles? Yeah, it was a lot of I enjoyed it a lot. So that you might remember, uh, I came to that with some some girl troubles I was having or like some things I was processing at the time. And just yeah, Mazunte is an interesting place, and it was so random that we met there. But I felt very supported. I, I've been in men's group most of my twenties, um, and just for a place for men to talk honestly and openly and vulnerably with each other and to support and share it's so powerful and it was beautiful in that circle too i felt really supported yeah it's really sweet just the idea you can just come through a new place maybe you're only staying for a couple of weeks but yeah go find the local men's circle but i was going to ask you as well about this ibogaine study because we were talking about the brain i was really interested at the maps conference in denver by a presentation by a, a guy at stanford and he was basically saying that there's this preliminary data that suggests that Ibogaine, which is an African psychedelic that is said to be the, the most reliable in rewiring the brain in a single or, or double session, this MRI scan suggesting that it de-ages the brain. I, I wondered if, if, if that's that's the case of other psychedelics or if you've, if you've come across this study. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. So the concept of brain age is one that's like been in neuroscience for a while. And it's just the concept that your your brain's health um, can be separated from your actual chronological age, right? And so you, what they do is they create these massive machine learning models with thousands and thousands of brains to get some kind of like normative assessment of this is what a brain of a typical 25-year-old looks like versus 30 versus 50, et cetera. And sometimes, you know, if somebody's a, a let's say, 
experienced a lot of trauma and is a drug addict and they're 45, but their brain is 55, right? Um, and it varies in that way. But on the, conversely, if you're really healthy, you can have a brain age that's younger than your actual chronological age. Um, and as far as I understand, there's never been a um, drug that has found to reduce your brain age, essentially, you know, make your brain more healthy and more resembling somebody younger than you. And it was really cool. Yeah. At the, in relation to those findings presented at in Denver, we found the Ibogaine, I think it was reduced uh, people's brain age by an average of 1.3 years or something, uh, which is fascinating. And again, like based on one or two sessions um, and um What's interesting there is I'm, I'm not sure on the details of that study, actually, if they were doing it in healthy people or people with um, addictions. It was um, veterans, veterans with PTSD. Right. right. So that makes a lot of sense because PTSD is such an intense, um, you know, disorder and coincides with chronic stress and chronic stress actually contributes to neur neuronal atrophy. Literally, your brain cells start to shrivel up through inflammation and through other mechanisms. And so... It makes sense that if ibogaine is anti-inflammatory, which it very likely is, um, and it boosting plasticity, it's going to help restore and repair these parts of the brain that have been damaged through chronic stress and PTSD. And so therefore bringing them to an earlier age. So that actually makes a lot of sense in that population. Um, but yeah, that particular metric of brain age has not been looked at in any other study as far as I'm aware. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it also happened. And But I think the effect might be the strongest for more intense disorders for sure. Well, yeah. So it'd be interesting to, yeah, see how it goes with that study and peer review and publication. I mean, mm -hmm. after I did Ibogaine, I remember I got stopped in the street a couple of times. Obviously mm. I was going over, I saw someone and was going to go holler at them. And they were like, yo, you seem way lighter. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's a powerful, it's a powerful one. There's a lot of untapped potential in Ibogaine. We focus so much on psilocybin, but for things like heroin addiction and potentially even PTSD and other things, Ibogaine could be powerful. And I know in the States, in Kentucky, they're, I'm not sure if it's official yet or it's actually released, but they're putting, I think, $32 million towards using Ibogaine for people who are addicted to opioids um, in, in various forms to help with the whole opioid epidemic. And so 32 million a lot is a lot for psychedelic research, especially when federal funding is very limited still. And so definitely something there with Ibogaine. Yeah, it seems like they could even fund the best part of the clinical study down there, which is pretty incredible. And yeah, it just shows all of these anecdotes of people's withdrawal symptoms just going like that, you know, mm -hmm. addicted to opioids for 20 years. And if you don't have them every six hours, you get nosebleeds or like crazy ass withdrawal symptoms but it's interesting that yeah psilocybin is used so much I, I wonder if it's just because it's considered more socio-culturally palatable I mean a lot of people say that LSD could actually be a lot more effective in certain cases it's just like has more of a stigma attached and obviously if you accidentally take too much out of the jar it you know it could be quite intense yeah, definitely. It's, I think a lot of it is the cultural baggage. Uh, and also, I think with psilocybin versus ibogaine and LSD, it's much shorter. Um, it can last as little as four hours sometimes, right? So it's like maybe four to six for most people compared to 10 to 12 with the higher dose of LSD and ibogaine, which can last, what, like 24 to 72 hours, um, depending on the dose and the context.
right? Yeah, and, where are the LSD retreats at? I've literally never seen an LSD retreat get advertised. That's such a good point. Honestly, there's reason to to believe that LSD might be better for social group tripping um, because research so far suggests that LSD can increase oxytocin levels, whereas there's no evidence for that with psilocybin. And oxytocin facilitates, you know, pair bonding and social social closeness and these kinds of things. Also, LSD is really interesting because it hits the dopamine receptors, which psilocybin does not. And this yeah. is why I have a lot of friends, this is anecdotal, I have a lot of friends who identify as having ADHD. They love LSD over psilocybin, every single one of them, because it gives them a kind of clarity of mind that psilocybin doesn't. Yeah, I think because of the cultural baggage and all the connotations of LSD, we're like limiting the potential that's there, our, our, our ability to uncover the potential that's there. So hopefully that changes in the future. Yeah, and and so like, Maybe we could talk a bit more about what happens in the brain during a psychedelic trip, because we mentioned, yeah, Robin. And yeah, when I spoke to him, we were discussing this pivotal mental state paper that he'd published. And yeah, the crux of it, I think, was a psychedelic experience being about, yeah, reaching a fork in the road where one can choose which way, to, which, which side of the fork to go down, whether it's like changing and reforming or continuing along the same track. And there was also quite a bit in the paper about how this state is maybe analogous to a sort of state of madness. Right, I mean, yeah, that, so that paper was trying to find, basically in some sense asking the question is, uh, what would the serotonin 2A receptor um, be for outside of psychedelics, right? This is a receptor that psychedelics mainly activate to induce quote unquote psychedelic effects. So it's like, we didn't evolve this receptor to be able to trip and take mushrooms, but we, you know, we evolved it for some evolutionarily adaptive purpose. And so that paper was kind of exploring what that might be with the conclusion that, um, you know, it draws on this idea that serotonin, the serotonin system, one of the things it does, it does a lot of things, is it helps us regulate stress. And depending on which receptors are activated, it provides a different response to stressful circumstances or intense circumstances, right? And we were saying in the more intense ones, when serotonin levels are much higher, if the serotonin 2A receptor gets activate, activated to a significant degree, that kind of enables us this kind of flexibility and openness and plasticity of mind that allows us to deal with a really intense circumstance in an active way where we're kind of behaving in new ways, conceptualizing in new ways, tackling it in relation to the demands of the moment um, in this very active way. And um, which separates, you know, well, if we, well, then the idea is that psychedelics are activating this in the absence of an actual intense stressful experience in our life. So we're hijacking this inbuilt system for change and adaptive responses, um, to, you know, in the context of mental health these days. Um and so uh, that whole model also helps link psychedelics to other experiences, which also, you know, are um, potentially tapping into similar mechanisms, such as breath work or fasting or sensory deprivation, um, or even just like self-flagellation, right? Like like people hurting themselves and history of that of, in religious contexts and stuff um, as well. And it could potentially, again, be activating this particular response um, of the brain that's used to deal with stress. So is there like, obviously it's a matter of dispute and debate at the moment, but in your view then from like a neuroscientific angle, what is 
like the best way then to solidify and maintain the positive shifts that have happened in the brain during a psychedelic experience? I mean, there's different kinds of psychotherapy and integration, but I wonder if there's any like particular strata. I guess it depends for the person, but yeah, what, what's your view on the whole thing? Like, how do we maintain that, like that afterglow and that juice, but then, yeah, really solidify that eureka moment, that eureka moment where I'm like, oh, like I need to do this. How do how do I make sure I keep doing this? Or yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I think the concept of neuroplasticity is really important here because you know psychedelics yeah during the experience they might give rise to all these insights and new perspectives and shifts in mindset um but they also boost our neuroplasticity which is literally our brain's ability to create new connections between brain cells or change existing ones so basically it enhances our ability to mold our brains uh, with our own conscious intention afterwards and kind of what you're saying is you know how can we go from those peak experiences and then encode them into the into our brain by changing brain connections and we know from neuroscience that the the way to create lasting changes in your brain is consistency right there's this saying that what fires together wires together so we need particular patterns of connections between neurons which support the behaviors you want to implement to be activated consistently and so coming out of that experience um being in environments and social contexts that help help you stay in a similar mindset and help you stay true to those realizations is so essential because really like consistency that matters. And uh, I do think as you kind of alluded to, it's what exactly you're doing, what actions you're taking is so specific to the person. But I think um, something I often say in presentations is this concept of psychological flexibility is really important here. And psychological flexibility is a technical term from acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a therapeutic modality often used with psychedelics. Um, it's basically the, the, the ability to be present in this moment, to accept whatever sensations and thoughts are arising with non kind of non-judgmental awareness, and, and to be clear on what your values are and to act according to the demands of the present moment in alignment with your true values. And it, it emphasizes mindfulness, being aware, present, embodied, accepting this experience, but also being committed to taking actions in your life. And I think that framework um, provides what you need in order to integrate effectively. You have to be present because in order to overwrite old patterns, et cetera, um, you have to be very present and mindful of them. But you also have to be clear on what your integration means and the concrete actions that you need to take on a consistent basis. Um, so I think one way of construing psychedelic therapy is a form of enhanced self-directed neuroplasticity. And actually Andrew Huberman basically framed it that way in Denver in his talk, which I thought was great because it's enhancing your ability to mold your brain. And, but where that direction goes, this comes back to the pivotal mental states um, paper, whether that goes into deeper into bad habits or goes in the direction that you want to go depends on what you're doing and the consistent actions you engage in afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And this is why I think one-on-one -on -one post trip integration therapy is really, really important. You know, folks can afford it, I guess, but yeah, I think just having someone once a week for four or five weeks, checking in with your, you, your intentions, your practice, keeping you on track is a really, really powerful thing. And I think, yeah, many retreats could consider 
adding that on, I guess it might raise the price overall, but I think that's where that's where the real magic is. Yeah, definitely. One-on-one -on -one integration and also community is so important to have a community of people who, um, you know, who you feel like seen and understood by and who are supportive with your journey, right? Because you can imagine a lot of people, especially let's say things roll out in a couple of years, you go to some mental health clinic, have this profound uh, psychedelic experience where you view your relationships in a new way, you view your life in, in, uh, in a new way. Uh, then you go home to your family who's like, what is this like hippie to be bullshit you're talking about, right? And they just deny this beautiful experience you just had. And like, that's not gonna be helpful for integration, right? So, so having your tribe or people to return to who get it is so important as well. Well, how do you get those? You can't get one of those for $150 an hour. Right. Uh, well, you got to find them, right? I think a lot of major cities have a kind of quote unquote conscious community or a group of people or even a psychedelic community. I know across North America, there's a lot of that. I'm not sure in the UK. I know London has a massive psychedelic society. Um, and so, you know, these communities are often out there and um, it just requires connecting to them and finding them. But also if they don't exist, Great, getting a friend or two and creating it. You know, we need more leaders to create it. And, you know, me and my time, I've created a couple communities. Uh, one at Simon Fraser University, which is a small university here in BC, in Canada. And then also at UBC, I, uh, University of British Columbia, I co-founded the UBC Psychedelic Community. And I, co and I founded those two clubs specifically for that reason. It's like, we need community. People who are out there who are on that wavelength and interested, but they don't know each other. And we just need leaders to create ways for them to come together and connect. And that is happening more and more, but it is so important and everyone benefits in the end. Yeah, totally. But like, yeah, just, just to keep my sort of objective journalist hat on for a second. I mean, you've got, yeah, you've got all these conscious communities all over the world that are lovely, but then there are a lot of people that you could maybe call like spiritual bypassers yeah, and yeah. kind of talk the talk, but don't really walk the walk. And you know, there's a lot of people actually, you know, learning about shamanism and, and maybe they don't even fully understand what they're doing. And, it, and it's pretty intense. There might be a problem in these communities of people not getting called out, right? Because there's maybe a reticence to just, um, yeah, to or rather, maybe there, there's an avoidance of conflict. 100%, 100%. Yeah, it, that was in the back of my mind when I was saying what I was saying. So I'm glad you brought that up. And definitely there's a lot of that, a lot of spiritual narcissism, a lot of inflated egos, um, a lot of people not doing, looking into their shadow, not looking into their blind spots and being put into these leadership positions and trusted, especially it's a danger. Yeah, because a lot of people are coming into these spaces pretty naive and um, just curious and willing to learn. But that, you know, often sets them up to be a bit more suggestible or um you know potential to be manipulated in some ways so it's really it's it, it is kind of messy like it is very messy more than kind of messy and this is this humans right and um i think it always comes down to people just trying to discern and you know, use their discernment as much as possible and and not allow themselves just to kind of get caught up in all of it and project all these positive things onto people without seeing their flaws. And, and also, yeah, having spaces where you can disagree and create healthy conflict. Um, if there's no conflict in the community, it's not an authentic community, right? And so there needs to be people who are able to speak up, but it's not easy. There's no easy solutions here. Yeah, and like we're saying about the pivotal mental state stuff, 
you know, if you've got ayahuasca or peyote ceremonies that are happening regularly and people are able to attend every week or every two weeks and they're not doing any integration, actually it might leave them in yeah quite a, a dark and suggestible place. Yeah, and that happens all the time, right? People from North America or UK going down to South America and doing all these intense retreats uh, and then leaving it a bit frazzled and destabilized. And then it's like, oh, well, where do I go from here? Or then they go home and then they, they don't quite resonate perhaps with their friends anymore then they feel a bit more isolated and right these are tough things but um i think yeah we need more good communities and i'm i'm mindful of this being too cynical as well i'm, I'm more I like to be hopeful and optimistic at the same time for sure yeah yeah i think with love it'll all everything will always be okay in the end right <laughs> it just well, depends what happens on the way and how long we're even talking here but yeah. um those michael pollan tweeted this piece that was in the washington post i think yesterday or the day before you might have seen it mm. saying you know the essence of it was not to self-medicate with psychedelics and loads of people were like hey dude you wrote like a whole best-selling book when you like took a bunch of psychedelics but then yeah. i guess the fine print is him saying well I did it with experienced people and I prepared and, and this, that, and the other. But then I guess you get into the territory of, well, you were able to have the time and space and economic resource to be able to choose the best people in the game to, to do your right. trips with. But, but yeah, what's, what's your view on self-medicating? Let's say, you know, just tripping by yourself or maybe with a, you know, friend trip sitter who, who's not like a psychedelic facilitator. Yeah, it's a tricky, tricky thing. If we put legality to the side, you know, depending on where you're doing it, I wouldn't advocate for the view that only you should only ever do it in the medicalized context, right? And I think there is room for that, but we need really good education on the risks and how and like proper tripping practices. And this is kind of what I endeavor to do with my YouTube channel, The Psychedelic Scientist, where I have a couple of videos. In fact, my most popular video, which is quite random to me, um, well, maybe not, is how to prepare for a psychedelic trip. And it's racked up like 130K views compared to like my other ones get like five to 10 or something, right? People are looking for this knowledge and people are going to self-medicate. It's not like they're not going to do that. And it's not like anybody's going to listen to Michael Pollitt, you know? <laughs> people are going to do it regardless. And I think it's really tough because you never know what latent things are in your psyche. You know, you might think I'm a healthy person. I have no trauma. And then you do three, four grams of mushrooms and you you have a, a memory where you feel like you remember being sexually abused. And then, okay, what are you going to do with that? Is your friend who's trip sitting you going to be able to help you with that? And that's always a possibility. It might be rare, but it's a possibility. Um, so I think it's a tricky, there's no easy answer here. Um, I think uh, we, what we need to do is give good education on what can happen and how to optimally prepare your set and setting and all these things. Um, and it, I think I would advocate if you're struggling from mental health condition, then you're not going to want to do it alone. That's for sure. And, uh, ideally find somebody who's uh, at least somewhat trained or aware in psychedelic therapy or therapy in general, um, and be very careful about who you're around, but it's, it's a tricky thing because people are going to do it regardless and they are doing it. So, yeah. And, and how did you get into psychedelics? I, so as a teenager, I somehow got interested into meditation and Eastern spirituality at around 16 years old. 
Um, and I was reading this book on Zen and reading about Vedanta and yogic philosophy and stuff like this. And, and you were like, fuck, I, I, I'll be doing this for like 60, 70 years and I'll never, I'll never get there. Give me, give me the psychedelics quick. Right, right. Well, at that time, I didn't even know psychedelics can do such things, right? And so I remember that background made me open to consciousness altering things in general and consciousness expanding things and made me curious about them. So when I had an opportunity um, when I was around 17 to try mushrooms at the beach with some friends, um, I took it. And that's what like shifted my perspective on a lot of stuff. It allowed me to separate my locus of identity from my you know thoughts and beliefs and identity in like this construct named Manesh and I was able to separate from that like during the experience you know for the first time ever and I was just so fascinated by it and how my complete perception of reality was so shifted in this more what seemed to be a more expansive way and more insightful way and then you know that inspired me this deep curiosity to learn more about the brain how it's constructing our experience more about psychology um more about you know philosophical questions of the nature of reality and the self and metaphysics and all these things and it inspired me on this direction um and then it's like oh what what better than to be a psychedelic neuroscientist and that was kind of the plan from pretty early on and and here i am i'm 29 now that was like 17 so like and i'm i'm doing the thing that i intended to do so yeah amazing <laughs> Law, the yeah. law of attraction does perhaps work right Incidentally, since you're in canada i remember the first time i did mushrooms i think i was 20 and i was mm -hmm. at a dubstep rave just outside montreal <laughs> and yeah. i was um hanging out with this girl and suddenly she pulled out some mushrooms from her bra yeah and, yeah i just like had some with her and things got pretty wonky right <laughs> yeah dubstep rave it's an interesting setting for sure <laughs> totally i mean yeah, I, I think I was pretty, pretty high, man. I was quite unanchored, let's say. I got invited to an after party. And so I went with this dude and it wasn't really an after party. It was just basically his friend's place. And mm. his mum was running a crack house out of it. Jesus. And it was like the most classic place. The, the house was on the corner, like literally on the corner. And people would come and knock on the door. And then the lady would go and just slide whatever the package was, you know, through a hatch. I was like, <laughs> where the fuck Jesus. am I? Yeah. And to be on mushrooms for your first time, that's not, that's a, that's a particular energy to be in. I think. Yeah. That's really funny. But luckily <laughs> um, my, my newfound friend who gave me the mushrooms then came over my, my buddy's place a couple of months later and blessed us. And yeah, we had a really, really amazing trip it hasn't actually been anything like it since to be honest oh interesting yeah yeah those first few are definitely special ones yeah i mean what is it then scientifically maybe with ecstasy i've thought about it before and maybe there are those yeah serotonin receptors that have just never touched anything like mdma before and it's just so fresh and juicy and that's mm -hmm. why one probably has the most amazing experience but what, how does it work with yeah mushrooms and other psychedelics yeah I, I think i would explain it more on a psychological level in that the novelty of it it's like uh -huh. you know i think psychedelics you know when you do it the first few times this whole concept of shifting completely out of your usual frame of operating is so mysterious and novel and new you're like oh like 
reality is more than I thought it was. Or like, yes, I've left the matrix. So weird and interesting. You know that can only happen once, right? Yeah. Then after that, you're like, oh, I'm back in this mushroom world or in this LSD state, and maybe you're like your sense of of how rigid and stable your experience of reality is is less, and so you're more open to being fluid in these different altered states. And then the novelty is not the same when you're there, right? So it's kind of like just going on an amazing holiday for the first time and there's all the great, you know, fresh Greek food or whatever. And then always afterwards, it's not as impressive. Yeah, it can still be impressive and interesting and, and different each time. But like that, I think that initial excitement of the novelty of it and uh, like the sense of wonder and mystery is a bit less, I think, as, as you do it more over time, but can always be cultivated and, and seen uh, anyway. And so do all the psychedelics work with the serotonin system? So um, mainly, uh, Ibogaine is different. It works yeah. uh, like, you know, on the kappa opioid receptor. It might also hit the serotonin to a receptor. It has a very complex pharmacology, Ibogaine. Yeah, um, I mean, it's totally we, different, dude. Yeah. It's, I mean, some people say it's not even psychedelic. It's like vision inducing. And yeah, yeah there's no, at least in my experience, there's no like kind of kaleidoscope geometry and all of that is it's like a whole totally different sort of roller coaster and right. then maybe like yeah random snippets and memories that maybe you didn't even have yourself and you're just being transported to like a totally other place you've never even been yeah really i yeah. can't i can't really compare it to any of the psychedelics yeah, fascinating. Maybe the yeah, I, I I can agree with that. I think maybe the reason we group it in as a psychedelic is because we just don't have nuanced enough terms to cover these different compounds. Like people call MDMA a psychedelic, and I think it's not. Um, it comes down to how we're defining psychedelic, but I think we need more nuanced vocabulary for these kinds of drugs. Um, and a term that I've seen for ibogaine is um, onergenic, or I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like O N I R. Uh, that means dream right in Greek. dream inducing that's what it means yeah yeah and i feel like that might be more uh, apt for ibogaine whereas mdma is an entactogen or empathogen right and then uh you know the classic psychedelics psilocybin lsd dmt are are like psychedelics proper that's kind of how i would see it and those work on the serotonin system mainly through the serotonin 2a receptor but also other mm -hmm. ones too and do any other psychedelics work like on satisfying the dopamine reward system because that really struck me earlier when you said that about lsd i'd never i'd never known that actually yeah um well interesting about dopamine yes it's in the reward system but it's also uh plays a major role in attention and executive function in the prefrontal cortex It'd be interesting to look at LSD and the reward system and how it uniquely affects that. But when I think of LSD dopamine, I think of the prefrontal cortex. And uh, if you think of stimulant drugs like Adderall, Dexedrin, they're all, um, one of the main things they do is increase dopamine levels. So they activate um, prefrontal dopamine to help with alertness and focus and these kinds of things. And so I think LSD uniquely is able to hit that and therefore, it might be useful for ADHD and these kinds of things as well, um, more so than other drugs. But but as far as I know, it's the only psychedelic that hits dopamine receptors to a significant degree. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. And how do you get your dopamine then? Uh, there are a number of ways. Like I, I love Andrew Huberman. Maybe you do too. Every morning I go for a walk to get my early sunlight exposure because uh, it enhances dopamine release and keeps your circadian rhythms in check, helps you sleep better too. Um, I like to take cold showers often. I sometimes take cognitive supplements like nootropics. Uh, tyrosine is a precursor to dopamine, which helps with dopamine levels. Um, also, you know, running, aerobic exercise can increase dopamine levels. I'm very active in terms of fitness and going to gym and running and these kinds of things. And just healthy diet and keeping a low inflammatory state in our bodies through not eating processed food and, you know, watching um, our consumption of things like, I don't know, like seed oils are being highlighted as inflammatory these days and and uh, different sweeteners and um, a whole variety of things. And so I'm very mindful of this. I, I take a holistic approach for sure um, to optimizing my brain function and just overall health. And I think people listening to this, yeah, are going to hear a man, a 29-year-old man, you, you've got this new job you're about to step into and yeah, you sound sound great, like really well-read, You've got your own mm. practice, really put together guy. But yeah, well, so what are you working on? What what makes you imperfect? <laughs> um, I think, well, there's always more work to do, right? I think I, like anybody else, or like most people, sometimes get super distracted with social media. And I'll just have a, a full workday derailed because I'm just distracted on my phone sometimes. Um, so that's something... LSD microdose. Right, right. Well, maybe that LC microdose will make me more interested on this stuff on my phone, right? But I think it's like, um, so I, 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 I can definitely be better. I can definitely be better in terms of, um, you know, my relationship to my phone and social media and, and work days and this kind of stuff. But I do put limits on that. Like I try to keep my phone on airplane from 10 p.m. till 9 a.m. most days and start my day before looking at my phone. Um, that makes a huge difference. And then outside of that, just exploring, you know, relationships with women and uh, and just like things around male feminine polarity and um, these kinds of things are really interesting, top of mind. And uh, I think my meditation practice, I'm a daily meditator, but it can be deeper. And uh, I want to do more yoga and take care of my body in terms of in terms of mobility and tension. Um, yeah, I don't know. So those are some things that I, I'm mindful of working on. But it's always, everything's an ongoing work in progress, of course.